In November 2019, a horrible murder shocked Clark County. Tiffany Hill, a mother and Marine veteran, was shot and killed in a school parking lot by her estranged husband, who was out on bail facing domestic violence charges. She did everything right and trusted the legal system to protect her, but it didn't. I, I was devastated. I am devastated. Um, this case and this victim will be with me for the rest of my life. Today, we're shining a spotlight on this crime that's all too common and what's being done to protect victims. From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. The justice system failed Tiffany Hill. The 35-year-old mother of three young children was a former Marine who served this country in Iraq. Two days before Thanksgiving, she was gunned down by her estranged husband outside of Vancouver school in front of her children and mother. Keelan Hill fled the scene and later shot himself. The community was not only heartbroken, but outraged this could happen. Keelan Hill was out of jail on bail, awaiting a court hearing in an ongoing domestic violence case. Tiffany had a restraining order against him. She told a judge just before her murder, he's going to kill me. Today on Straight Talk, we learn more about the person Tiffany Hill was, what went wrong in her case, and we examine what's being done to strengthen protections for victims of domestic violence to try to stop this from happening to someone else. Welcome to my guest, Michelle Bart of the National Women's Coalition Against Violence and Exploitation. Washington State Representative Sharon Wiley, she represents Vancouver and has been in the trenches on this issue for years. She's working to tighten state law regarding bail. Also joining us, Detective Tanya Wolstein of the Vancouver Police Department. She's worked many domestic violence cases, including Tiffany Hills. Welcome to Stray Talk. It's so nice to Thank have you. you here to talk about this important issue. Let's start with the kind of person Tiffany Hill was, what your role was, and what your reaction was when, when you heard what happened. We'll begin with Michelle. Well, when we heard about it, it was in um, a jurisdiction of uh, friends, you know, children that went to that school. And so we contacted the family. We basically just helped with some resources and gave uh, her sister some information on who to contact as far as victim, uh, like the cr uh, crime victim compensation and things of that nature if they needed help with airline tickets to get here uh, or get the kids back to New York. So we were in the background and we're, you know, still standing by um, making sure that the laws get passed that this doesn't happen again in our community. Detective, you responded to the initial shooting call. Tell us about that. Uh, I work in the Domestic Violence Prosecution Center and uh, we heard the call coming in on the radio. It initially came in as a school shooting, an active shooter, so we were all suiting up to go. Uh, and it quickly, information came out uh, and then Tiffany's name came out. And uh, Lauren, who's the uh, prosecutor on this case, works in the office with me. and I. So remember yelling, it's, it's Tiffany, Lauren, it's Tiffany. Um, I went to the hospital where both Tiffany and Keelan were taken, uh, and they had both just been uh, declared deceased at that point. It was one of the worst days that I've had in my career so far. Because you had worked with Tiffany on cases. Uh, I, had, I had. I had met with Tiffany, and we had uh, 
had an interview and done a danger assessment and worked on a safety plan. I had been texting her throughout the last week. She was very concerned about Keelan getting out. Uh, and she told me, I know that if he sees me, he's going to kill me. And we texted all the way up through the morning of the shooting. So it must have been just heart-wrenching when you found out it was her. It, it was pretty devastating. It's, it was very, very difficult because we had done, I felt, so much to try to keep her safe. And to have something like that happen was very difficult. Representative Wiley, what was your reaction when you heard what happened? Um, I was very, very shocked. Um, Forty years ago was the first time I set foot in our state capitol and it was to testify on a bill to make it illegal for husbands to beat and rape their wives. And over that period of time, most people won't say out loud that it's okay for husbands to beat their wives. Um, we've established uh, shelters for victims. We've changed the law. We've, we've um, done a lot to help keep spouses safe in domestic violence cases. We've learned um, that these cases are dangerous for our first responders. And when I started learning about this 45 years ago, um, the problem was in the police department and the prosecutor's office and in the community. Um, our police and our prosecutor did everything they could do within the law. Um, but I found some things out since then, which we'll talk about later, uh, that I didn't know about our state constitution and things that are still gaps in our law. And we, we will get to that in just a moment. I want to talk a little bit more about how this hit the community. Many in the community were heartbroken about what happened to her, and dozens gathered in Vancouver's Esther Short Park in early December for a candlelight vigil to remember the life of Tiffany Ojeda Hill. Let's listen to some of her friends and her mother. There's not enough power in the days, weeks in a year, to convey what a wonderful human being she was. She'd always come and talk to you and, and give you good advice and support. She was so supportive. She was a fierce force to be reckoned with. I tried to save my baby. I came home here to break a home with me and the kids. I knew something was wrong and going on. Everyone who knows the love of a daughter, and that was my daughter. That was my best friend. Well, that really brings it home to hear from her mom. Detective, you worked with her. How, how would you describe Tiffany Hill? What was she like? Tiffany was such a loving mother. Uh, we had more that we wanted to talk about when I spoke with her and she wanted to get back to her kids. She was very involved in her children's school. She was on the PTA. She was a former Marine. She was a veteran. Uh, and she was a sweet and kind person uh, who was just doing her best to, to navigate this situation. And uh, she was someone I'll never forget. There were many domestic violence incidents that led up to this and Keelan before he killed her. Let's take a look at a timeline that led up to that. On September 11th, 2019, Tiffany Hill reported her husband Keelan pushed her into a wall and tried to prevent her from calling 911. She received a concussion. Keelan was arrested. The next day, Keelan was released from jail and told not to contact Tiffany. On September 14th, 
He contacted her in violation of a no-contact order, and it happened again on September 19th. On October 6th, Keelan tried to buy a rifle at a Walmart in Multnomah County. A background check flagged the domestic violence case, and he was denied. Four days later, October 10th, Keelan contacted Tiffany again. On November 7th, Keelan Hill violated that no-contact order once again, and detectives found a GPS tracker on Tiffany's car. Keelan was arrested. November 8th, police completed a danger assessment with Tiffany and put her in the extreme risk category. November 13th, prosecutors asked a judge to raise Keelan's bail from $75,000 to $2 million because they believed he would kill Tiffany. A judge set the bail at $250,000. On November 21st, Keelan bailed out of jail. Then, November 26th, he shot and killed Tiffany and injured Tiffany's mother in front of their children in the parking lot of a Vancouver elementary school. It is such a tragedy, and, and you've all said that Tiffany did everything right. Michelle, how could this happen then? The system is broken. Um, laws have to be changed um, because judges in our county and our, across the country hide behind the laws and what power that they have. In this particular case, I think every case is going to be different. In this case, um, I, I feel that the judge should have uh, given the $2 million and listened to the prosecutors and all of the police departments that were involved in Tiffany's case from day one. There were three or four different jurisdictions that worked together to keep her and the kids safe. And in the end, it just wasn't enough. And, you know, in, in our opinion, if criminals and perpetrators are doing things against protective orders that the judges have passed, then that's all the more reason not to bail out and, and to sit there and think about what they've done until they have their day in and court. And you told me there's like, there were 64 violations that he had, something like that? There were 64 violations that were written, I believe, or um, that um, investigators knew about um, from her family and friends and, and one of the friends that were interviewed, um, they said it was over a hundred times he's tried to, to contact her after there was a protective order in place. So obviously the protective order and the judge's rulings over and over again did not help the situation. And the fact that he tried to buy a gun during the time he was out on bail, that's the more reason to keep him behind bars. And, and if we don't have the laws that would allow the judge to make that decision, then that's what Representative Wiley is working well, let's, on. Let's get into that, because Lauren Boyd, the prosecutor, you mentioned her earlier, a detective, felt Tiffany was in grave danger, and that's why she asked for $2 million bail. And the judge did set the bail pretty high for that particular a case like that, maybe not that particular one, at $250,000, but it wasn't enough, and he, he bailed out. So first, we're going to listen to some sound, a clip. First, you're going to hear part of a letter that was read in court that Tiffany Hill had written about the danger she felt she was in, and then part of our interview with Prosecutor Boyd. He's going to kill me if he's given the opportunity. I beg you to not allow him to get to me and my children. Um, I have no family here, nowhere to go. We have no money and nowhere to hide from him. He's made sure of that. Thank you. Why'd you go in requesting what you did? I was trying to 
prevent him from bailing out of jail. Um, his actions leading up to that hearing, specifically that he tried to purchase a firearm, that he installed a GPS tracker on a car, is terrifying. It was escalating very quickly. I think that um, the way that we handle bail in these dangerous domestic violence cases needs to change. I think that if somebody is, has a no contact order preventing them from having a firearm because of a domestic violence issue and they try to purchase a firearm, the law should say that they aren't entitled to bail and they should just be held without bail. And Representative Wiley, this is something that you are working on, you feel passionate about. There are some constraints you have to work within because of the state constitution. Tell us about that. Well, our state constitution um, clearly states that people have an absolute right to bail unless they're in for a capital crime. Now, we don't um, have capital punishment for any crime right now. Um, and that means that you can get bail um, unless you've actually killed somebody and they know you killed somebody. Um, and that's just wrong. Um, furthermore, um, there's a paralysis and a discussion going on about bail nationally where uh, bail's supposed to make you show up. So it's enough money to make sure you show up. What we end up with is uh, some hesitancy at putting a high bail and it's a get out of jail free if you have the money, uh, no matter what you've done. Uh, I think domestic violence, it works even less well because um, a domestic abuser may have done a lot of abuse without ever being reported. Um, and then when it is reported um, and you try to do a risk assessment, he's got no priors because all he does is hit his spouse and hurt his spouse. And that means that he's not going to fit into the kind of matrixes that, that uh, are used to decide whether criminals are dangerous or not dangerous. And so. Um, I'm, I'm actually tackling something that may be a big hurdle. I've got, a, uh, I've got two bills. One is uh, a bill uh, to say that when you violate a risk protection order and you're supposed to not have a gun and you try to get a gun, um, you, can't get, you, you can't get out of jail. The judge does not have to give you bail. It's still discretionary, but it, it lets the judges know that this is a special case. Uh, in addition to that, there's a, refer, uh, a joint re uh, House resolution to go out to the ballot and make a small change in our Constitution that will allow judges to withhold bail in the interest of public safety when the indicators are that strong. It's just not a matter of showing up in court. We want people to be safe. And this is something that uh, might not pass this legislative session uh, because it's a short session. It's a big but hurdle, but I'm trying. On it. You wanted to comment on that, Michelle? You no, know, uh, you know, you don't know what you can get until you try and, and, um, and it's bipartisan all across the board for Tiffany and the victims before her and the victims after her. And we need to keep pushing for it. Let's it's talk busy, about some. I'm sorry, I just wanted to say that the hearing is this Tuesday at 3.30 in the Public Safety Committee in Olympia. And there's another piece of legislation working its way uh, through Olympia that would affect future victims Absolutely. that may be helpful that might have helped Tiffany. is sponsored by Washington State Senator Linda Wilson of Vancouver. And here's what it would do. It would use electronic monitoring with victim notification technology. In Tiffany's case, the judge could have given her husband an electronic monitoring device which would correspond to an app on Tiffany's phone. And that app would send an alert whenever the accused abuser comes close to violating a restraining order. It could have let Tiffany know her husband was approaching. Let's listen to what Senator Wilson had to say Say about it recently. Had she known he was there because the app went off and told her that he was within 
50,000 feet distance, he would be able, she would be able to have been able to go to the sheriff's department or the police department or anywhere to get away from him. And Detective, you testified about this bill um, up at the committee meeting in Olympia. Tell us about that. What did you tell the committee? Uh, I, I gave the committee a timeline of the events, uh, and I spoke a little bit about believing that it's our duty to do whatever we can within reason to help protect victims of domestic violence. They're at the greatest amount of risk when they're trying to leave their abuser the first three months are a high, high risk situation for them. And having the, the court and, and things going on with that helps escalate situations. And for Tiffany, Keeland was in that parking lot for 20 minutes prior to him attacking Tiffany. So things like this can alert victims and give them the opportunity to get help to escape. I think it's extremely important that we use the technology that we have to help keep our victims safe. Do you think this this would be something that could pass this session? We know it passed Absolutely. the Senate already. Absolutely. I'm, I'm waiting for it to come over. Uh, in a short session, um, we don't both need to do a bill. We just need to concentrate together on the one bill that's already passed, and we need to get it through the Senate as it, soon as possible. And it will be called the Tiffany Hill Law if it passes. Is this going to be enough? What, do you think this is really going to help? I think it's a start. You know, uh, Tiffany deserves to have justice and her children deserve justice and so does her family and her mother. Her mother was a victim in all of this as well. And not to mention the shooting that took place at the school that, you know, they brought in counselors and everything. We're not talking about the impact that this has on trauma for the children that had to see it on TV, hear about it, be on lockdown again. It's not fair. You, you're supposed to go to school for education and, and our kids constantly are seeing this. So whether it's for Tiffany or, or the next person, we need it in place so that the judges can say, I'm sorry. You, you've, you've done wrong and you're not getting out of jail right now until you have your day in court. And I think that would have saved Tiffany if he, if he wasn't able to bail out. Get some numbers. You provided some of these numbers to me, Detective, from the Vancouver Police Department on the incidents of domestic violence, all the calls you respond to. This is just in the city limits, 4,300 domestic violence calls a year. That's about 40% of all the calls that Vancouver Police get. Add to that 2,300 domestic violence calls per year in Clark County for a total of 6,600. And looking at Multnomah County, there were more than 37,000 calls in 2018. And for all of Oregon that same year, 96,000 calls. The numbers are staggering. And Michelle, I think you told me that these numbers show that this isn't just somebody else's problem. No, it's not. Uh, this is everyone's problem. We always say, oh, it's not my business, what happens next door, but it is because in the end, it, it affects all of us and trauma with the children, not only Tiffany's children, but the children that see things happen as well as all of us. And in the end, it's all impacting our, our pocketbooks too. So when you think it's not your business, think again, because when we send out an on average two three police officers on DV calls you know that's taken three officers away from something else that they could be doing to keep a community safe and uh, prosecuting cases the money 
constantly is going through and you're looking at numbers over a hundred thousand people uh, between Clark County and Multnomah County that's and those are reported cases that are coming through hotline numbers so imagine all the ones that people aren't calling in and saying because when we see cases like Tiffany's she did everything right so why should I phone in but there are resources and there is help and, and we, we need to save all of the folks. But it, in the end, it, it comes down to all of us and this is our problem, our community. And as you said, it's, it's not just Vancouver and Clark County. We mentioned Multnomah County, Oregon, a nationwide problem. And in the case of, of Oregon, we're following another high profile case of a missing Albany woman, Tiffany Lazan, and she hasn't been seen since Christmas. Her body's not been found, but police had enough evidence to arrest her estranged husband, Craig was on for her murder and he had a laundry list of domestic violence related charges including attempted aggravated murder assault rape kidnapping those charges were dismissed but Tiffany had a no contact order and that's in the news most of these cases don't make the news uh, detective let me ask you how do we bring down those numbers I think I agree with Michelle. This needs to be a community problem. If you look at like drunk driving, for example, used to be a somewhat acceptable wink and a nod kind of situation. And we had a national campaign and we still have a national campaign. We have government funding uh, about DUI awareness and the awareness of the absolute danger to everyone on the road. If one person drives drunk and we've seen that change culturally from something that's somewhat acceptable to something in most circles that's unacceptable and there's been many changes people make in their lives in order to avoid driving drunk and while it doesn't completely fix the problem it absolutely has taken people off the road that normally would have driven drunk and I think that that needs to happen starting at a very young age I talked to school children at 12 years old that are in criminally domestic violence at 12 related uh, relationships and it's they're modeling what they see they're modeling what they know and they don't know that what they're doing is a crime it's just something that they think is acceptable so we need to have better education at a younger age uh, or any education many kids get no education no help on what a good relationship looks like and what healthy boundaries are let me bring representative Wiley in because we don't have a lot of time left but just less than a minute uh, what do you want people to know well, I want people to know um, that the things that people say without thinking have a huge impact. Uh, a lot of victims don't leave because they're ashamed. Um, if they leave once, they are more ashamed if they go back and they don't ask for help again. Mm -hmm. And so um, for all the people out there um, who've said, I don't understand why somebody doesn't, does, doesn't leave, um, she, it must not be that bad because she went back. Um, you know, she's just, she just needs to stick up for herself a little bit, or he seems like such a nice guy. Uh, 40 years ago, we had a better conversation socially about this issue when we were putting up those first domestic violence shelters. Mm -hmm. um, we've come a long way, and I think we've forgotten to talk deeply and think deeply about what this really means Let me bring up and Michelle how traumatic it is. Real quickly, because we're almost out of time, but you have a big event coming up in March. Oh, Tell we us do. About that. Uh, March 8th through the 14th is No More Week. Uh, if you go to nomore.org, you can learn about having uh, programs and events in your uh, community. And it's a uh, time to call call out domestic violence and sexual assault and say no more excuses. Thank you, and I want to quickly put up a phone number, a domestic violence hotline, 1-800-799-SAFE, and there's also a crisis line, 235-5333. Thank you for watching, 
and we'll see you next week for Straight Talk.